podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The official Brighton and Hove Albion podcast. Thank you for joining us on this souvenir edition episode of the official Brighton and Hove Albion podcast, end of year review. And what a year it's been for the Albion. We apologise for the late arrival of this episode. We've had an injury hit production squad, but we hope it's been worth the wait. We wait. A big wait. McAllister sets himself. McAllister scores! The knockout blow! Incredible! That's it. It all ends in glory for Brighton. Record breakers, history makers, absolute heroes. Racing goalwards, Fatty slips it to Adinra. Big chance, this Adinra! Albion double the lead! This brilliant Albion team have made their European dreams a reality. This is Paul Hayward. And I'm Glenn Murray. In this special end of year review, we'll be hearing from you about your best memories and reliving some of your moments of the season. Kieran Steele, my highlight of 2023 was our away trip in Amsterdam. Lynn Crockett, uh, the home game against Man United. Andrew Downs, qualifying for Europe for the first time. It started during what we now know to have been their most successful season in the league to date. But in January, European football wasn't inevitable. Arsenal topped the table and Brighton were eighth behind Fulham. It was a strange start to the year after the long World Cup break. Brighton had eight players in the World Cup. Unprecedented. Very strange. First time ever. But I think with Alexis's homecoming, him lifting the World Cup, it just set the club off on quite a positive note, I would say, especially I think what they did to welcome him back to the club, that will live long in my memory. Um, his entrance into the into the training ground, I feel as though there was one or two Argentinian players that returned to the Premier League and nothing much was celebrated by their clubs. And I thought it was a really nice moment and it showed the class of the football club welcoming Alexis back like that. And for the club to have a player who had won the World Cup alongside Lionel Messi, which is one of the great World Cup stories of all time, frankly, for him to walk through the doors of this training ground at Lansing and return to Brighton and Hove Albion. What a marker, again, of, uh, you know, how far the club has come. I'm slightly younger than you, Paul, not, not that much, but the best World Cup final ever? I think it is in my generation. No, I think the 1950 final was better. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. Uh, it was. It had everything, didn't it? And and that tournament with the controversy around it probably needed a spectacle of that quality. It was a fabulous contest with a with a magical ending. Messi, a World Cup winner at last. Yeah, and it was a little bit of a possibly passing of the guard. Messi, the world's best player and the world's best youngest player in Kylian Mbappe on the other side, going head to head, it seemed, and. I think it encapsulated the world, didn't it, that that final? It had everything, everything good about football was involved in that final. As well as Leandro leaving the football club, there was a lot of talk around a certain Moises Caicedo, who, beyond January, was a major player in helping Brighton to Europa League football. The Seagulls put Liverpool to the sword twice on home soil in two different competitions, with Solly March, the star of the show, in a comprehensive 3 0. Premier League victory. The second time was in the FA Cup and it was a late winner 
from our Japanese superstar, Karu Mitoma. February, a 400th appearance for Lewis Dunk Glenn. How big is that landmark? I think the special thing about that landmark is that it's for one football club. There's not many of those guys around these days that, that managed to see out all, almost all their career. And I think Lewis has come out now and said that he wants to finish career at the Albion. So to have that, I think it's is extra special for him and his family. And I fully expect him to break that 500 mark. And another player we, you and I both revere, Pascal Gross, made his 200th Seagulls appearance against Crystal Palace and helped them to a win with a goal from Solly March. For me, Pascal is probably the best player to ever pull on an Albion shirt. Uh, I think that ever since he came to the football club, he's been exceptional uh, both on and off the field. And I think when you look at the stats, I think he's second behind Kevin De Bruyne for chances created, for big chances created in the Premier League. And that speaks volumes when Kevin De Bruyne has got a lot of attacking talent around him. And in the early days, Pascal maybe didn't have that as much. And Germany got there in the end, didn't they, in 2023, finally giving me his Germany cap. Where were they? What were they thinking? They were sleeping for a long time on Pascal Gross. Judged on his speed, I think. I think everyone is very quick to make a judgment on Pascal based on him not being the quickest. But when you're not the quickest, you've got to be super quick Mm. upstairs. What's ball round the corner in German? (laughs) Because he's a master of it. The player of the match was Pascal Gross. Right back, left back. Sometimes it's a midfield, sometimes wide left. As a coach, how important is, is he to you and his flexibility? I'm sorry because I, I, I have only one Pascal Gross on yeah. the squad. I would like uh, to speak with uh, his father and mother if there is another Pascal Gross or another Gross anyway. But I think it's impossible. That was Deserby speaking about Pascal Gross. And we haven't talked much about him, although most of the guests on the podcast have... Let's get into the Deserby effect, Paul. Yeah, I, it, it seems odd to say that uh, Deserby could improve Pascal Gross because he didn't need much improving. But I think Gross has gone to a different level under this manager because I think the way the team is, is set up uh, for Pascal Gross's strengths to shine and also um, the kind of confidence the manager has in him is really noticeable. For me, during his tenure at the club, uh, I know it's a little over 2023, crept into 2022. I think I think it's fair to say that Roberto inherited a really good foundation of a football club left by Graham Potter. Uh, and from that, he's, he's, he's really picked that up and ran with it. I believe that he has changed the mentality of the squad. Um, I think we were in that transition under Graham, but this past year in 2023, I really feel as though the Brighton of Albion players under Roberto believe they can win at any ground in the country. And I think that is the biggest change for me. Um, that mentality, that belief uh, of, I think when you first get promoted into the Premier League, it's almost acceptable to get beaten by certain clubs. Whereas now we go away from home to those big clubs, to those clubs that are in the top three, the top four. And we expect to win and we give as good as we get. Yeah, everybody focuses on it, on his, you know, the big idea of his, the passing and movement and pressing. But what I notice more and more is his adaptability. We know that he spends hours and hours and hours preparing for each game. 
and is, to use a modern phrase, is in-game management is absolutely exceptional. He'll change the team around, he'll change positions around, his substitutions are excellent. So he's not seeing the game as a as a as a static thing, you know, before kickoff. He's seeing it as a as a kind of moving spectacle and his ability to to intervene and spot things and problem solve is really top draw. The official Brighton and Hove Albion podcast. We've been listening to the personal recordings that you've left us, and here's the first of your special memories. So the name's Mark Draper, and for me, the best moment here was the Grimsby FA Cup game. I've never seen a crowd, both sets of supporters, as good as that. It was an absolutely superb game. There was a throwback there to the, you know, the Fans United era when Brighton was struggling to survive, and they found common cause with lots of smaller clubs so it's nice to see that sentiment still there you know Grimsby fans with their Harry the Haddock uh, inflatables and it's a reminder that uh, although going to away games is a sort of tribal collective experience each fan feels it individual it's deeply personal at the same time yeah for me it was that was a really nice moment I remember I covered that game for the BBC and we actually had to walk through the way end where there was a lot of Harry the Haddocks and a few did hit me on the back of the head. <laughs> but I find that absolutely unbelievable that that was his highlight of the year when we got into Europe. And there's so many highlights to me, but that one is very strange. Yeah, it's an eclectic choice, you've got to say. In most seasons, getting to the semi-final of an FA Cup would be a big deal. But in April, after going out to Man United on penalties, the Albion were genuinely concentrating on the league or what is it about Brighton and Manchester United in the FA Cup? It's remarkable to think back now and realise that Brighton's priority was a top six position and getting into a European place and that the FA Cup, as Glenn said, was was nice and important, but almost secondary. Nobody will forget Brighton's 2-1 defeat at Spurs in April which ended an eight-game unbeaten away run but was one of the most controversial matches of the season. VAR was in the dock just for a change and De Zerbi and Christian Stellini were both sent off following a heated touchline exchange. Yeah, that one is one that will live long in the memory for all the wrong reasons because on that day the RB were absolutely outstanding and were undone by some very, very poor refereeing stroke VAR decisions Hence the apology afterwards. The sheer weight of errors in that match prompted the uh, chief referee officer, Howard Webb, to make contact with Bright to apologise, particularly for the uh, failure to award the Seagulls a penalty. Karu Mitoma was tripped in the box by Pierre-Emile Hoiber, but referee Stuart Atwell failed to spot the offence. Fast forward to the end of the month and Brighton had an emphatic 6-0 win against Wolves, leading into what was one of the most important months in the club's history. Well, May started with a familiar flourish, a Brighton win over Manchester United, but it was no ordinary game. Oh, there's a handball. He's going over to the monitor. This could be... The most dramatic end. And it's given. Out 
Champion have a penalty in the last seconds of the game. Luke Shaw can't believe it. What drama. And we wait. A big wait. McAllister sets himself. McAllister scores! The knockout blow. Incredible! The Alexis McAllister penalty in the ninth minute of added time added an extra note of drama to what has become, you know, quite a lively rivalry. It has indeed. That that game was marred with a lot of needle uh, aggression. That uh, there's a clear dislike between both clubs or sets of players, should I say? And to win in that manner for Alexis McAllister to stand on the spot in front of the North Stand, the anticipation at an all-time high, and that one for me is a moment that does very much stand out in 2023. Alexis McAllister smashing that ball into the back of the net and the euphoria that ran round the Amex afterwards. Yeah, eight yellow cards in that game, Glenn. That probably tells the story. Yeah, it does. Yeah, indeed. And do you know what? It was ju- it was just a real moment. And I th- I think that is one of the moments where Brighton and the group of players and the surrounding support actually started to believe that Europe was a clear possibility. And the McAllister penalty was definitely a fan's favourite, as you're about to hear in this clip. Ling Crockett, uh, the home game against Man United when we scored the uh, penalty right at the end of the match. Uh, it was just great. I was watching it. Well, I wasn't watching. I was listening to it. And that Crete monumental night of the Amex was followed up by moment. a struggling Everton side coming to the Amex. I think most people around the country, never mind Brighton, were expecting a Brighton win. But he went from the sublime to the ridiculous. And Everton ran out winners 5-1. I think they only had five shots on target all weekend. And then it was up to Arsenal for a huge fixture the following weekend. Glenn, you know, obviously one of the things about this podcast is that we're always, always, always praising. And I know that you and me might want to be critical every now and again. And what I'd, what I'd want to come back with on that game is that was one of the few examples of a team stopping Brighton playing and coming to the Amex and negating Brighton's style of play, hitting them on the counter-attack five times and winning the game easily. I mean. We can say that, can't we? I think we can about certain performances in 2023. But for for me, that one was a real anomaly because Brighton were really good on the afternoon. They hit the post on a number of occasions. I thought Pickford was outstanding. And like I say, five goals, five shots. I think it's a Premier League first, to be honest, to, to score every shot away from home. Um, and yeah, it was, it was one that, that was thrown up and very, very much unexpected, I think, from both sets of fans, in all fairness, but then leading to what, what became an even more major game uh, for both clubs the following weekend, Arsenal in a title race with Manchester City against Brighton. And it's one where you head to the Emirates and you're hopeful, but you're tinged with a little bit of fearfulness as well. The 3 0 win at Arsenal on 14th May was another uh, stupendous moment in the season. Very few teams go to, to the Emirates and win 3 0. It was a tremendous Brighton performance. But then, of course, 
They went to Newcastle uh, shortly afterwards, uh, made a few changes, and were pretty much thrashed 4-1, which left them needing to beat Southampton at home to qualify for Europe. Southampton at home, I remember it well. A lovely day on the south coast, and it was a very nervy afternoon, I think. It was Southampton that were, well, they were relegated, they were fighting for their lives, and you wondered if there would be a sting in the tail. But luckily, Brighton were composed on the day and dispatched of Southampton 3-1, qualifying for Europe for the first time in their history. I suppose we could put that up there with, well, maybe not. Getting into the Premier League was was the ultimate achievement. But then, you know, for them to, to qualify in sixth position, as I always keep saying, for the same competition that Liverpool were going to be in the following season. I think the eyes of the club opened and the horizon stretched and suddenly... People were starting to think about European trips and fixture lists abroad and who the Albion might face in Europe. And it was that was a, that was an epic day. If you if you compiled the top five days in the history of the football club, that would be very, very high. Yes, 100 percent. Dreaming of a European adventure is probably one thing that the Brighton faithful Never even crossed their minds. Uh, Getting to the Premier League, obviously, stabilising yourself in the Premier League. They've had so many positives over recent years, but to, to qualify for Europe was just really was the icing on the cake that no one's seen coming. And to do it in such style against, I mean, some of the, some of the clubs up there, like you see, your Liverpools, it was just a surreal day. And, 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 and for fans to be excited about who we were going to get all over Europe and I'm sure we'll come on to that later on the podcast was just a monumental and surreal day for the club and it was a really good sign I thought that three days later instead of relaxing as they might have done the Albion gave Man City a hell of a game at the Amex it was a 1-1 draw but everybody who was there remembers it as a you know a classic of technical football and I think for the Brighton players so soon after qualifying for Europe to go, you know, fight fire with fire with Manchester City was was hugely to their credit. Yeah, I think it was a game for the football purists, wasn't it? It was just played in such an amazing manner, even though there was nothing riding on the game. And obviously, it was a goal that will live long in the memory as well. Another highlight of the uh, Julio Enciso's long-range effort that eventually won goal of the season. Straight back and March sets off for goal. Infield he goes. And Ciso lining it up. And Ciso! What a strike from Enciso! Glorious! A goal of the season contender at a critical moment. Losing two world-class midfielders in the summer would be a challenge to any manager. So I think as the LB went into that new campaign, people were wondering about how they would repair the damage there and how they would screen you know, the back of the team, how they would stay defensively solid and how Deserby would kind of refashion the team to make up for those two enormous losses. And let's not forget that Levi Colville went back to Chelsea, which created another a defensive challenge for the, the coaching staff. 
everything went smoothly in the Premier League and everything seemed to be building up as well to the European debut. And I'll never forget the sort of festival feel at the Amex that night. It was like a dreamscape. The fans turned up hardly believing that AEK Athens were going to run up the tunnel and Brighton were going to kick off their Europa League uh, campaign. They did, and they suffered a home defeat to start their group stage. And I guess it felt at the time like a bit of a reality check. Uh, Athens were physical, direct, strong, experienced, canny, and it didn't work for Brighton that night. But we weren't to know, of course, that the uh, group stage was going to get an awful lot better. It was indeed. For me, my highlight of the year, I think, probably came in Marseille. Being 2-0 down, I, I felt as though, like you say, Athens were very physical on the first night. We were caught a little bit cold, maybe got caught up in the, the whole circumstances of the situation, the magnitude of, of what had been achieved. But Marseille going 2-0 down, I really did feel. But for the boys to come back and draw 2-2, I felt as though that was the night that they started to believe that they belonged in Europe. Yeah, absolutely. I remember watching that game and thinking at 2-0 down in that first half, I thought, okay, this European campaign is, you know, is is not about to end exactly, but it's it's petering out. It's hard to come back from that. You've lost your first game. You're 2-0 down in Marseille. Maybe it's going to take a year or two to acclimatise. And maybe they'll just end up writing this one off. But the way the team fought back to draw 2-2 was the start of, of a fabulous revival in that group stage. You don't expect anything less from a Roberto De Zerbi team. Never beat. The European draw threw up some amazing travel opportunity for Brighton fans. Some huge football clubs, some massive cities over the continent. And I think the one that most people wanted to visit was Ajax. Kieran still, my highlight of 2023 was our away trip in Amsterdam up the Albion. And there it is, the final whistle. The Albion go top of the group by completing the double over European heavyweights Ajax with their first ever away win in Europe. Not just a good night, but one of the great nights in Brighton's history. A brilliant win, a remarkable achievement. It ends at the Johan Cruyff Arena. Ajax nil, Albion two. The Albion didn't just qualify for the next round of the Europa League. They, they went through as group winners straight into the last 16. No need for a playoff. And that felt like a supreme achievement to given the start they had in the group stage, to go through as group winners in a strong group, let's face it, with some big names. And for the fans to be able to look forward to the draw for the next round in February, well, that was pretty special too. Here's another favourite fan moment from you guys. It came in November and it was back in the Premier League. Jerry Steele, uh, my key highlight over 23 has been the away trip to Notts Forest. Absolutely sensational. Do you remember that game, Paul? I do. Uh, real drama. Fans love those games. Lewis Dunk sent off in the 73rd minute. Uh, a real battle. A goal for Evan Ferguson from a Pascal Gross assist. I think we'll be hearing that quite often. And then Jao Pedro uh, winning a really tight game uh, for the Albion. One of those classic away wins, which I would imagine that you would tell us, Glenn, you get on the coach feeling very happy after those. Yeah, I think for everyone involved with the club, it would have been a very happy journey 
back down south. Uh, we talked earlier about uh, Enciso's goal as the goal of the season in the previous campaign. He points to that kind of constant theme in the Albion story, Glenn, which is emerging talent. Paul, how long have we got? I think we need another pod for that, don't we? Um, well, the, the three two feature the most heavily were Buenonote, Ferguson, Angelwood, all teenagers. Buenonote has done absolutely fantastic in the absence of others. Um, Ferguson, for me, is the classic number nine. He's got everything about his game. He really excites me. Obviously, got his first hat trick in the Premier League this season, which is incredible. Scored the most goals in a calendar year in the Premier League since, I don't know if you've heard of him before, a little fella called Wayne Rooney. Um, and then the local lad, Jack Inchewood's got family history at the club. He knows what the club's all about. He's seen it from all different angles. And I think what strikes me most about Jack's emergence in the squad is that it gives a clear pathway to the youngsters watching from the stands that one day they get their head down and they work hard that they could represent the Albion, not only in the Premier League, but also in Europe. My daughter sent me a text about him, about Jack Inchell, and said, isn't it great that he's a, a he was, she was watching it in a bar on holiday. She said, isn't it great he's a local lad? And and that's the feeling. That feeling is still there in the game. And uh, with his connections, so great-grandfather, grandfather, father, and two uncles, all professional footballers. And when you see him running up and down, it's a bit like watching, it reminds me of Gary Neville a little bit, actually. There's a, certainly a class of 92 feel about him. His exuberance, his his ability, you know, his what he represents. He is he is the local version of something that's actually very international with the Albion because the the recruitment is is so global, and yet there you've got a lad who's from just down the road, and the fans absolutely love him. Well, what a way for the year to end. Four two home win over Spurs at the end of the month, end of December. And revenge, some might feel, for what happened at the Tottenham Stadium uh, earlier in the year. Yeah, I can't help but feel it was an apt way to finish the season. Beating Tottenham at home capped what to me is, well, the best calendar year the football club's ever seen. Will it be surpassed? Can it be surpassed? What's next, Paul? Well, I'm a realist and you have to say that the Premier League has got harder for the Albion since last season, for all sorts of reasons. The emergence of Aston Villa, which has been spectacular. Spurs have got their act together. West Ham are sticking there. Manchester United might come with a run at some point. So there's no you know, lifetime membership of the top six in the Premier League, that's for sure. But the progress on all fronts of the club is, is, is still there. And the, the emergence of the young players is still happening. And of course, there is that amazing treat of a second round uh, fixture in the Europa League. So the Europa League second round to me is the, is the big beacon for the club in 2024. Meanwhile, they'll go about the, the tricky business of trying to stay where they are in the Premier League. Well, I for one, Paul, can't wait to see what 2024 holds for the Albion. And thanks to you, the fans, for listening to the podcast throughout a vintage year. Some of the best moments are squeezed into the Christmas special and you can listen to all episodes from what has been a very memorable year. 
I think all that's left to say is probably, Paul, a belated Happy New Year from the both of us. Yeah, have a wonderful 2024. The official Brighton and Hove Albion podcast. We achieved the uh, incredible target for the Brighton club, for the Brighton players, for the Brighton coaches, and, and we are very, 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 very happy. This podcast is a VoiceWork Sport production for Brighton and Hove Albion. Sports Social Podcast Network.